Hello guys, can you guys hear me? Alright, good, good, good. Um, if you don't have a Bible, uh, Jerry's coming around, please uh, get one from him. If you don't have one, I believe you can keep it. And we also have Chuck here helping out with that, so please get one. Okay, alright. Um, my name is Nick. I'm the senior pastor. <laughs> No, 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 not at all. <laughs> I don't want to be a pastor. <laughs> but, <laughs> Nick, no offense. <laughs> but um, so today we're going to be talking about an impervious joy, right? And I'm going to be reading from Romans chapter 8, from verse 28 to 30. Just three short chapters. I'll give a little introduction and then we'll pray. Right? So Romans chapter 8. From verse 28 to 30. All right. And I guess I, let me just give a brief introduction before I read. So in Romans chapter 7, towards the end, right, we have Paul talking about this duality that exists between us, right? Almost like two horses being pulled in two different directions. I want to do what is good, but I end up doing what is evil or what I don't want to do, right? And he cries out and talks about who can save him from this this tension, basically, right? And he points to Christ. And then in Romans chapter 8, he blesses God. He talks about what Christ has accomplished for us, right? Adoption into his family. He talks about the guarantee of the Holy Spirit that is put in us. And then he starts into this idea of suffering from verse 18 down to about 23. And then he talks about hope a little bit, and we come to this text. So Romans chapter 8, from verse 28 to 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Um, Father, we we come to you today from just different walks, different places we are in our journey. And some of us are going through some really, really hard times. Um, and that pain is not trivial to you. In fact, the Bible says that you keep a count of our tossings, right? And you store up our tears. In the bottle. The very fact that your promised name Emmanuel means you are with us helps us to understand that our pain, our suffering is not trivial to you. And so God, we're praying that today you will come and speak into our hearts, that you will break open our hearts, that you will touch us exactly where we need help, and that during this time our ears will be open to you. And we will truly have ears that hear you, and eyes that see you, and hearts that understand you. So I pray, God, that you will speak, not me, and that you will speak to everybody that is here, including me. You will have your way, God. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, like I mentioned, the title of the sermon is An Impervious Joy. The idea behind that is, how do I get a joy? How do I have a joy? And it's going to be a process, a consistent thing. 
that is untouched by circumstances. What I mean by that is that I'm not saying you don't grieve or you don't have pain or there isn't this um, despair. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying in the midst of all of that, you still have an anchor into God that holds you. Right. So how do we have an impervious joy? One of the sad, I say sad, but one of the sad realities of life or a guarantee of life is that we are going to suffer. It's not something that is fun. It's not something we look forward to, but we are going to suffer, right? This could be the death of a loved one, terminal illness, unfulfilled desires, um, bitterness, unforgiveness. Jerry spoke about that not too long ago. That really touched me. Right. But but there is going to be some kind of tension, some kind of longing, some kind of suffering that we're going to go through. Right. It's it's always going to be there in some form or way. Right. And I'm not saying it's going to it might not necessarily be like the sufferings that some of the apostles went through. Right. But it could be persecution. Right. Sometimes it's you not being you wanting to progress in your career in a certain way and God having a different plan for that. Right. Sometimes it's your family, your kids. Right. Sometimes it's this fear of the unknown, uncertainty, like what lies ahead of me. Right. So in some form or fashion, there will be some suffering. Sometimes it's diseases, right? Sicknesses, like a terminal illness. I have a friend um, that just found out that her mom has brain cancer, and I didn't even know what to say. Right. It's just crazy, and she's here. My mom is back in a different country. She's thinking of, do I stay here and continue my career or do I go back home and possibly start everything again, right? So some of those really hard, sometimes unspeakable suffering. Now, you might ask, why do we suffer, right? (laughs) I don't have a good answer or I don't have an accurate, comprehensive answer. You can talk to Nick. Nick will have all the answers. (laughs) Uh, but I do want to pull out certain things from Romans 8. Now, we didn't read this text. This is from verse 18 to 23, but, but you can check it out later. Suffering exists because we are part of a broken world. And we ourselves are part of that brokenness. What I mean is that sin has infected this world. And we could trace that back to Adam. But the point is, I'm selfish. right? I want things to go my way. And because of that, it's very likely I'm going to inflict suffering on someone else, right? Sometimes we suffer just because of the way the society is structured and how sometimes you're just cut in between, right? So that's one of it. And we are part of that brokenness, right? We sin. We hurt people. We say the wrong things. I do a lot. Um, And we know instinctively that there has to be more. There has to be something better. We see flashes of that. Maybe in people, sometimes maybe God walking through us, we, we see flashes of this state that if things could only be like this. That's why Paul talked about the groaning, right? That we groan, that creation groans, right? For the revealing of the sons of God. And he talked about they as the apostles, as the first fruits of the spirit, they also groan, longing for redemption of their bodies, right? Looking forward. And the point is, we are all in need of healing. We, we are the sick. We are the ones that are selfish, that are broken, that have all this chaos. 
all, not chaos, but all those funny things in us, right? And this was what the religious elite missed, right? So we talked about, I think Nick talked about this not too long ago, where you had Simon the Pharisee on one hand, thinking he's okay, he's good, everything is good with him. And then you had the woman with the alabaster box, right? Understanding that she's in need of healing, and so she is attracted to Jesus, attracted to his mercy, attracted to what he offers, right? We are all sick. That's part of why we suffer. Right? And then all, all of the suffering really should be pointing us to Christ. It's this idea that everything that is going on, there has to be a better state. There has to be something more. Right? So all forms of suffering should be pointing us towards Christ. It's the same thing with all forms of pleasure. It should simply be a foretaste of what is to come, a foretaste of what we can apprehend. Right? And so... I just want to make sure as we go into this and we talk about joy, our pain, our grief, they are not trivial. This is not to say don't grieve. No, 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 you should. This is not to say just, you know, pony up and act like everything is okay. No. What I'm, what I'm hoping we get out of this is in the midst of all that sorrow, we can still rejoice. And not just the optimism kind of thing, but that we truly rejoice. We have joy. This is why Paul would talk about being sorrowful yet rejoicing. Right? In Second Corinthians 13, 6 verse 10. So, again, we're talking about an impervious joy. What is that? How do I lay hold on that? How do I operate in that? Right? So, like I said, we will grieve. And then from scriptures, it seems like Jesus speaks of a type of joy that we can have. That is untouched by circumstances. So in John chapter 15, and I'll just read. um, I'm going to read just verse 11. But right before that, Jesus is talking about, he's talking to his disciples about abiding in him. And he's giving them a new commandment. And he's saying all these things about if they abide in him, there will be a fruit, right? Excuse me. And from there, he says this. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Right. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Now, he's talking to apostles that are going to suffer, right? People that are going to go through just so much pain and issues. Let me describe something here from Paul in Second Corinthians chapter one, from verse eight to ten. Just, just to describe some of what the apostles went through. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength, and we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt like we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he would deliver us. On him we have set our hope, and that he will deliver us again. So what is joy? Right, I've been talking about joy, and we're going to get into it very soon. Joy is basically knowing that you are unconditionally loved by God. Right? It's that deep awareness, that sense, that pervasive sense that you are just completely loved by God. Right? And, and that is the joy we want to hook in today. The question then becomes, what is joy in a practical sense? How do I hook into this? How do I choose joy? How do I fight for joy? Right? So... I'm basically going to say and basically theorize here or postulate here that the answer 
lies in Romans 8 from verse 28 to 30. Three verses, three principles. Right. The first one, verse 28. All things turn out for good. That's the first component of our joy. And we'll dig into this. Verse 29. We have a good that can never be lost. And then verse 30. The best is yet to come. Right. All things turn out for good. We have a good that can never be lost. And then the best is yet to come. So these are the three components that I'm going to get into that makes up our joy. So verse 28, let me read again. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Right. So the first implication is everything happens to Christians. All things, right? The good, the bad, the ugly, everything in between, right? All things happens to Christians, right? There is no, sometimes we might hear this sense that if a Christian things will go well for you, maybe it's possible. <laughs> I don't want to be the bearer of bad news. It's possible. But what I'm trying to say is all things happen. Just, just so that we know, so that we're not surprised, right? Everything happens to Christians, right? This is why Paul would say in Romans 8.35 later on, what shall separate us from the love of Christ, right? So he's about to give different categories. And this is the idea that everything happens to Christians, right? Shall tribulation, distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or the sword, right? All things happen. In First Peter 4, 12 to 13, this is Peter writing to Christians. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice. And that's our word joy, right? But rejoice. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when glory is revealed. Philippians 1 verse 29. Again, talking to Christians. This is Paul. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Right? Second Timothy 3.12 Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Right? There will be some form of suffering. Right? So that's the first thing. All things happen. The second thing is, God is the one that makes all these things turn out for good. I'm going to talk about what good means. Right? But God is the one that makes it turn out for good. This is not by your strength. This is not by your planning, your strategy. Those things are great. Please plan. Please strategize. <laughs> but God is the one that makes all things turn out for good. Right? This is to show our dependence on God. But this is also to calm you down. That you know that God is able to walk all of this out for good. I don't know how it's going to happen you probably don't know how it's going to happen, right? But he will work it out. And this is to comfort you. This is part of that joy. This is you knowing that regardless of what I'm going through, God is able to take these things and work it out for good. Now, a caveat, a lot of times, probably like yourself, I have an idea of what is good, right? What I want, the money, the promotions, all of that. A lot of times it doesn't happen. <laughs> At least not for me. Um, <laughs> So I'll talk about what that good means, but God will work it out for good, right? And if anything good is going out, going on in our lives, it's a miracle of grace. And so we are thankful. We enjoy it and we are thankful to God for that, right? 
Again, Romans 8.28, right? Let me just read it again. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. What I want to draw out there is the good that God will work out will be according to his purpose, right? What he's going to work out in you is going to be according to his purpose. Real quick, what's the purpose of God? The purpose of God for your life is for you to glorify him and enjoy him forever, right? Isaiah 43, 7 to 10, you can check that later on. That's God's purpose. So whatever is going to work out in you, it's going to move you right towards that place of enjoying him and glorifying him forever. So I know sometimes when we speak like this, it kind of seems abstract. Like, yeah, glorify God, enjoy him forever. Like, I want a job. Like, I give all of that to the side. I just want to get a job. Or I just want to get married. Or I just want to have kids. I know it can seem like this is just some theory we are talking about, right? But we have to remember that if we believe the cross, and if Christ Jesus can die for you on that cross, then be rest assured. Everything that happens in between while we are here on the side of eternity, he has your good at heart. He will do what is right. He will satisfy you. Right. So we talked about how God will walk all things out for good. That's the first component of your joy. This idea, this sense, this understanding that God is going to make all things work out for good. Verse 29, second component. Let me read from verse 28 again. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For, that word for in verse 29 could also be translated because, so there's a link there. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might become the firstborn among many brothers. Right? So the good that can never be lost, the good that God is going to work out in you, is conformity to the image of Christ. Right. The idea is that God is working all things out in you so that you are conformed to the image of Christ. Right. So this doesn't mean, like I said before, that God is promising you better life circumstances. Like you get in a wonderful, great job. Like you have in your own startup company, which God might very well do. So I don't want to say God won't do that. No, he, he, and I'm praying he does that. Right. Um, you know, um, it's, he's not necessarily promising you that if you don't get into, let's just, let me talk about my school. So I, I don't make fun of anybody's school. <laughs> so I went to Lincoln University in Pennsylvania. So God isn't saying if you don't get into Lincoln, you're going to get into Stanford. No, he isn't saying that. What he is saying is that no matter where he takes you to, he's going to morph you to become more Christ-like through that process. So he's not promising you a better life. He's not promising you better life circumstances. He's promising you a better life. So sometimes when you don't get a job, you go for an interview. I've done some of those recently. And you don't get the job. It doesn't mean you're going to get a better job the very next time. It doesn't. Again, I don't want to be a bad news. But I just want to be real. Right? It doesn't necessarily mean that. But what you can trust in is that that conformity to Christ, where he's taking you, what he's building in you, that is way more than the job. That is way more than the wealth, the prosperity, the longings of your heart. 
the career progression we seek, the financial security, that conformity to Christ, way more than that. Let me give you a quick analogy. Uh, I don't have a book with me, but just imagine you have a book in your hand. right? The amount of years we spend on this life, right? let's say 100 years, 120, right? that's like the title of a book. Right, so just pick up any book you have the Bible, just that title, the Bible. That's like the hundred and twenty years we spend here on this earth if we live to that long. So the whole book is eternity. That's what God is concerned about. He's concerned about your life here for sure, definitely. Right? Or else he wouldn't send Christ to come leave and show us how to leave and die for us, right? But what he's looking at is that long term perspective, right? The whole, the totality of it. So in verse 29, um, we, we talked about, it, it, well, scriptures talks about how God foreknew you, right? The idea of foreknowing you is that in eternity past, God chose you, right? And then he predestined you, meaning he's guaranteeing you where you are going, predestined you to be conformed to the image of Christ. So he's taking you somewhere. So from eternity past, God has chosen you. And then he's guaranteeing where you are going. Now, I know we have a lot of questions about predestination and all of that. Again, I don't know that. Talk to Nick. If you have any questions, talk to Nick about predestination. But what I want us to see here is that Paul is putting this here, this idea of predestination, to comfort us. Again, it's this idea that God knows where he's, God knows who you are. He called you. He chose you in him. And then he's taking you somewhere. So again, it's this idea to comfort us, right? So again, the first component of our job is that all things will work out for good. That good is conformity to the image of Christ. That's where he's taking us to, right? Conformity to the image of Christ. So again, like I said, if God chose you in eternity past and is guaranteeing where you are going, you have to believe that the in-between is a small matter for him to take care of. And he will take care of you, even if you don't get that right job. Even if that sickness doesn't go the way you want it to go, he will take care of you. He will be with you. He will not abandon you. Your pain, your suffering, all of that is precious to God. This is why the scripture says in Psalm 56 verse 8, that God keeps a count of your tossings, the things that bother you, right? And then he records your tears. He's with you. He experiences that pain. That's his name, Emmanuel, God with us. He's always with you in the midst of everything, right? Always with you. And so the question, if you're like me, you know, if I'm hearing all those things about conformity to Christ, I'm like, yeah, how, how does that touch me where I am? Like, yeah, okay, good. Conformity to Christ. That's great. But what does that do for me right now? Like, I'm trying to get this job. What does conformity to Christ do for me? Right? The question becomes, do I even want this conformity to Christ? Like, do I even see it as something good? Right? And what conformity to Christ does for us is this sense of knowing if, if God is taking us and molding us and pruning us to become more Christ-like, right? he will take care of these other things. The seemingly, well, the things to us that are very important, but to him that truly he can at the snap of a finger fix. This is why in Matthew uh, chapter 6, I believe, from verse, I think, 25, 
talks about do not worry about what you will eat or what you will drink, what you will wear. Right? So he's, he's basically given this sense of the basic things, the things we all need, this idea of all these things we strive after and long after and all of that, right? And then he goes on, I think, around verse 33 or so, talks about seek ye first the kingdom of God. Actually, before that, he talks about don't run after these things because your heavenly father knows that you have need of them. He knows. Again, if he chose you in eternity past, before you were formed, and he's guaranteeing your future, he knows. All the things in between. He knows. Right? And that is where conformity to Christ meets my pain where I am. Sometimes the pain, at least for me, is battling unforgiveness. Right? When people have hurt you deeply, and even the idea of forgiveness makes you cringe. What, what strengthens me sometimes, because forgiveness is not just a one-time thing. It's like you walk through a door and you keep walking. Because those thoughts keep coming back. The pain keeps coming back. And it seems like somehow, because you are the offended one, you are the one that has to do the work and continue to do the work of forgiving. Right? But where conformity to Christ meets me in that place is one me being able to see that if I am doing anything good at all, it's because of Christ. Whoever might have done something to me, Christ also died for them. Right? And so I think Nick talked about how uh, sin in the unbelievers, right? It, it might be a raging fire, but the same embers lie in us. If I'm being very honest with myself, I don't really want justice. Because if God brings justice on that person, I'm done. Right? Because if he brings justice on that person, as a righteous and just God, he's going to bring justice on me too. And so I keep working on that. And this scripture has become an anchor for me. That God will walk all this out for good, transformation into Christ-likeness. Not just in me though. Also in the other person, right? And, and it's a struggle. It's a you know, it's it's painful sometimes. That's why we're talking about it's a process, right? So this is where conformity to Christ, for example, meets my current pain or my issue or whatever I might be going through, right? That's just an example. Why is conformity to Christ important? Again, just so that we don't get lost, right? What we're talking about is the first component of our joy is that all things will work together for good. The second component is that Christ is going to transform us, or God is going to transform us into the image of Christ, right? Why is that important, right? Christ is the radiance of God's glory, right? The express imprint of his nature. So Christ images God perfectly. What God has promised us is that we will be conformed to the image of Christ. In essence, we image God. Right, and again, that can seem very theoretical, right? Very, yeah, we image God. How does that help me? Right, but I just want to read a quick quote from C.S. Lewis that helps me a lot. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of rewards promised in the Gospels, it will seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. So my desires for the things I want right now, the things I want to happen right now, it will seem 
that our Lord finds it weak. You see, we have we are half-hearted creatures, mm. fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go and making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. So sometimes when I want vengeance, when I want to get back at the person, it's, I'm like a child making mud pies and slums. Where God is inviting me to a holiday at the sea. And so I'm far too easily pleased with my anger, with my vengeance, with my selfishness, with my moral superiority. When God is offering me something more. Last component of our joy. The best is yet to come. Right? We talked about how all things work out for good. First component of our joy. Second thing, God is conforming us to the image of Christ. And then the last thing, the best is yet to come. So let me just read verse 30. Well, let me read 28 to 30 again. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might become the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Right? Now, if you look at those statements, right? For knowing us, predestined, and then calling us, uh, justifying us and then glorified. The word glorified is in the past tense. We should be a shock to us because we are not glorified. Right? I'm not glorified. I have mentioned, right? You guys are not glorified. At least I don't see you radiating. <laughs> right? um, but before we get to that, right, we have to talk about how are we called and justified? What is this guarantee that we are going to be glorified? Right? The only answer that makes sense is the cross of Christ. That's the only answer. Right? We, we talked about this brokenness that's in us. Right? This is part of why we suffer, because we are part of a broken world. We ourselves are part of that brokenness. Right? And so if we, if we are broken, how is it that a holy God wants to be with sinners like us? Like before a holy God, we are basically rabble. Then so how, how is it that he wants to be with us? Right. Romans three twenty two to twenty six. We just give you a brief overview of that. Um, this is Paul speaking. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's it. We're done. Condemned. Judged. No hope. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Right. Verse twenty four though. And all are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Who God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Meaning he put him forward as a way to appease the anger and the judgment of God. So on one hand, God is the judge. And as a righteous judge, he has to make out judgment and punishment. And then on the other hand, he provides a lamb. Christ to meet that judgment. And so God becomes both our judge and justifier. 
right? This is why we are guaranteed that transformation into Christ-likeness. This is why we are guaranteed we will be glorified. That's where we are going. This is why our joy can be impervious. Because we know, because of the cross, all things will work out for good. That good is conformity to the image of Christ. And the best is yet to come, which is being glorified. I said that that word glorified is in the past tense, which really doesn't make sense that it will be in the past tense because we are not glorified. The idea behind that, though, is that we are so assured of God's character and his promise that based on the integrity of God's character, it's almost like it's done. It's like a guarantee it will be done. That's why it's in the past tense. Even though it's not yet done, the idea is God is so true to his word, it's done. And that again should source our joy. In the midst of pain, in the midst of grief, the platitudes we offer like, don't worry, it will be okay, that, that doesn't do anything. Right? Don't worry, you know, that person, God just needed that person more in heaven, doesn't do anything. Right? There's still pain when you don't get where you want to go, when there are deep, deep disappointments. All that stuff about, don't worry, time will heal all things, doesn't do anything. This is what does something. This idea of knowing that you are called, you are justified. God will work out all these things for good. And that good is conformity to the image of Christ. And that you know that all this good, whatever is happening, whatever good you have, whatever good God has given you, it can't be lost. And then the best is yet to come. This is what sources your joy. Like I said, that, that word uh, glory is an interesting word. You know, sometimes like, what is glory? Are you radiating? Are you shining? What does that mean? Um, again, I don't know completely. You can ask Nick what that means. <laughs> but, uh, but what I do want to point out is the word glory has two components to it, right? One, there is a weight associated with it, right? Then two, there is this radiance to it as well. So let me just read some scriptures. Second Corinthians 3.18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, the glory of the Lord is Christ, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. He, Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds all things. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. So the guarantee of the good we are talking about here is glory. Glory in the full expression of it is basically becoming fully conformed to the image of Christ. Right? That we are just fully united with this person. Fully. Basically, you see Christ, you see us, there's no difference. I mean, he's God's son, right? <laughs> Apart from that. <laughs> right? But that's the idea. So again, quick recap. How can we have an impervious joy? Or what is an impervious joy? Three things, right? All things work out together for good. There's no timeline. It's not going to be in two months. It's not going to be in two weeks. I don't know what the timeline is. But all things, the suffering, the pain, the struggle, all things work out together for good. That good cannot be lost. And that is conformity to the image of Christ. And then the best is yet to come, which is us being glorified. 
Like I said, recall if Christ chose you in eternity past and is guaranteeing eternity future, everything in between he will take care of. He will help. He will be with you. He will work it out. Now, practical application and I'll close in. How do I practically hold on to this joy? How do I fight for this joy? How do I choose this joy every day? Second Corinthians 3.18, I just read it, but let me read it again. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. We lay hold on this joy through meditation on the person of Christ. Put in another way, we lay hold on this joy by meditating on the Word of God. Right? This is what sources your joy. This is what helps you remember that God is taking you somewhere and he is going to work all this out for good. We meditate on his word. Now, if you're like me, I, I speak to myself a lot. And quite frankly, what I say to myself is disastrous. Usually not very helpful. <laughs> right? um, you know, you, you have a plan, something happens, and like, man, I can't get this done. This is not going to happen. What's going to happen now? I need to have three other plans. Uh, and you're just tired. Right? Like, just in two minutes, your whole day can go just south. Right? That's if you listen to yourself a lot, like myself, and the inner critic. Now, this is not even to talk about the other voices you hear. The other things people say, someone at work says something, someone trashes your work, and it just seems like you're nothing. Or do we take in the word and use it to speak to ourselves? Do we feast on the word of God and use it to mediate some of all of that which we hear and how we feel? To continue to choose joy because joy is something you choose every day. You choose to recall that you are unconditionally loved. Loved by God. So, let me just give a quick quote here by John Piper again just to describe some of the pain we go through and some of the issues and why we need the word because we need the word to address all the unexpected things that happens to us, right? So, let me read this real quick. I think I can say from experience, from history, and from the Bible, every Christian needs more spiritual food than one meal a week. He's talking about more food than just coming to church. That doesn't work physically. It doesn't work spiritually. Now, this is what gets me, right? This is what is true of me. This is why I need the word, right? What he's about to say. Temptations are too relentless. Doubt is too frequent. Satan is too active. Tribulations are too heavy. Conflicts are too many, way too many. Emotions are too volatile. Perplexities are too difficult. Faith, hope, and love are too threatened. To think I can deal with all of this with just one meal, with just coming to church? Like, no, I can't. They're just too many. It comes too often. A couple of scriptures just again to point to the necessity of the word. John 17, 17. This is Jesus praying for his disciples. He's about to go to the cross, right? The shadow of the cross is heavy on him. He's praying not just for his disciples. He's praying for everybody else that will believe in him through the disciples, right? So he's praying for us. 
John 17, 17. He's praying to God. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. First Peter 1, 23. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Right. So you see, the goal here isn't simply just to memorize scriptures and recite it and say, oh, I've memorized all of Romans 8. I haven't. No, I'm just saying. Right. <laughs> That's not the point. The point is that the scriptures becomes your well-worn companion. They become so much a part of you. It's almost like you've journeyed together through whatever it is you're going through. Right. That's the idea behind this, right? To feast on the word. And it's a process. Right. It's kind of like, like Piper was saying, right? You just don't eat once a week. You keep eating. So you have to keep feasting. You have to have a, a way of life, a discipline, a practice, a habit, whatever you want to call it, that gets you into the word. Right? Whether you can do it every day, every other day, whatever works for you, start somewhere, but continue to build on it. There is no other way. Right? This is how you hold on to joy. This is how you live through the craziness of life, the temptations that are too relentless, the doubt that is too frequent. We hold on to the word. And when we do that, what begins to happen is that the words of Christ, the words of life, they become so embedded in you that what comes out of you all the time is joy. So let me give an example. Uh, A lot of you drive. When you drive right now, you don't think. You just drive. You know what to do. You instinctively know when to, you know, press the brakes, check your mirrors. You just know it's become so much a part of you. Now, if you can think back to when you started, it was kind of hard. It's like, oh, you told me, hold on to the, <laughs> sometimes I'm trying to turn, I'm turning this way. <laughs> this is how I'm turning, right? I sometimes, so afraid someone blurs the horn. I'm like, just talk, just frozen. And my friend's like, just drive. Like the car, the car responds to you, <laughs> right? Now, that's what happens at first. But over time, it's just so second nature. This is the idea. This is where we're going. Right? So the word becomes so second nature to us that joy becomes the note that comes out of us. Again, it doesn't mean we don't grieve. It doesn't mean there isn't despair. It doesn't mean there isn't sorrow. But it does mean we can hold on to joy. We can choose joy. Quick homework, and then I'll be done. Um. So you have it there in your bulletin. Uh, just as a way to start off in terms of this practice or this habit, pick a passage that depicts what you're going through, that depicts your relationship with God, that depicts your longing for God. Right? Just pick a passage, whatever that is. Right? I gave some examples here. James 4, 1 to 10, that's on desire. Psalm 139, a way of laying hold on your identity and who you are. Right, Romans eight thirty one to thirty nine or Hebrews six thirteen to twenty, it's kind of like an anchor for the soul. Right, Psalm forty two or Psalm sixty three, longing for God. Right, Philippians two one to eleven, humility, the outpouring of Christ. Right, Psalm twenty seven, God as my stronghold. Pick a passage. Something that depicts your relationship with God or your longing for God. Memorize it. Sing it aloud. Read it aloud. Whatever. Do whatever you need to do. But memorize it and meditate upon it. That's the point. Meditate upon it. Think about it. Meditation in the original language just means you're muttering something. 
It's almost like you're saying something repeatedly. The idea is to get it inside of you. So do whatever it is you do. You sing about it, whatever. Just get it on the inside of you. Right? That it becomes a part of you. Right? Do it for about a month. Don't do it for one day. Don't do it for one week. We're all busy. A lot of times we don't even remember what we read, if you're like me. When I read my devotion in the morning, a lot of times I don't remember. <laughs> so but do it for a month. And then just try to notice what God is doing in you. Journal about it. Write it down. Think about it. You know, talk to friends about it. You know, talk in your community about it. Whatever it is, just to help to get it on your inside. Right? And then as you do this, you will see that increased sense, that increased sense of ultimate and pervasive well-being that is joy. That, that strength, that courage to be able to face anything that comes your way. It doesn't mean you are not afraid. It doesn't mean your feet does not shake. But it does mean that you are able to press in and hold on to God. Even as you move through whatever it is you face. All right, so let me quickly read Romans 8. I'm going to read from verse 31. And I just want to read just all the way down. This again for me is a, is a scripture that acts as an anchor for my soul. I'm just going to read it and pray. That My hope is that he encourages you. And you know that God is for you. God will never ever leave you alone. No matter what you're facing. No matter what you're going through. And that he sees all this. And somehow he will make it turn out for good. That good is conformity to the image of Christ. It will never be lost. And the best is always yet to come. Romans 8, from verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God that justifies who is it to condemn? Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, and who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we have been killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So in the midst of all this darkness and pain, Paul talks, he speaks, basically he's trying to say something in from verse 39, 37 to 39, basically trying to just burst out and use the, how would I put it, just use like language in a way to cover everything to talk to our joy, to speak to our joy. So verse 37, no, in all these things, all the craziness, all the suffering, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is your joy. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you 
for how we are always blessed to have an audience with you. How we can come into your presence and you can speak to us. Holy Spirit, I am praying that you will please strengthen us. Give us this joy. Give us courage. Help us to feast on you. Help us to meditate on the person of Christ. Help us to always lay hold on you, Holy Spirit. So that we know that in anything we are facing, we are never alone. You are always, always with us. In Romans 8, 26, it talks about how you, the Holy Spirit, you are groaning, you are praying for us. With groanings too deep for words. Romans 8.34 talks about how Christ is interceding for us. So if the Holy Spirit is praying for us and Christ is interceding for us, let that calm our hearts, God. Let us know that the Trinity is very much invested in our lives, in what we are going through, in the pain and the suffering, in the chaos and the strife, in the bitterness and the anger. In the unfulfilled desires and belongings of our heart. Help us to truly lay hold of you, God. To lay hold of joy. And to trust in you. In Jesus' name. Amen.